Welcome to another episode of Time Out with the Sports Doctor podcast. Uh, glad to have you back for another week, another episode. And we have another very special guest for you today, uh, Mr. Bill Carter, who is um, a sports, has a history, a long history with sports marketing and running his own agency, uh, but now is diving really deep into NIL, name, image, and likeness. Uh, you know, we spoke about that on an earlier episode, um, but he does a lot of research. So what we're going to talk about today, he has a lot of research. So we're going to talk about the facts of NIL and how it's changing the game, especially in college athletics. So Bill, thank you for coming on. Really glad to have you on today. Are you interested in real estate? Are you tired of hearing about all the money that your friends and colleagues are making from their investments, but you don't know where to start? Don't worry, I got you. We are teaming up with Dr. Ronnie Shalev and Shawin Properties to equip you with the tools you need to feel empowered about your investments. So how do you get involved? Do these three things. First, go to my website at drderekthesportsdoctor.com and click on the sponsor link for Shawin Properties. This will give you access to a free webinar as well as the ability to have a discovery call with Dr. Ronnie Shalev. Also follow her on social media and stay tuned for more helpful tips coming at you on Money Mondays. Now, back to the episode. Thanks for having me, Derek. It's great to be here and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely. So as we've talked about with many other guests, I get recommendations from other people. So uh, Ms. Sue Izzo, who was, that was a great episode. She had the Action Sports Agency, and she talked to us a lot about building your own brand as well as marketing. So uh, glad that she blessed me with another great guest and really looking forward to this. Sue's incredible. I've known Sue for over 20 years. It almost makes me, um, it feels old when I think about when <laughs> I met Sue. We were, we were really sort of kids in the mid-1990s, not really kids, but but you know, barely into our mid twenties and the 1990s, and both uh, developing businesses around action sports. I mean, Sue was like a thunderbolt to the action sports community. Created her own agency, Mosaic, and was representing a bunch of action sports athletes. And uh, and my business partners and I, uh, Issa Salabini and Brett Smith, developed uh, a marketing agency called Fuse. Uh, still in existence today, though I'm no longer an owner, that was really representing a lot of the key Fortune 500 brands in action sports, uh, Mountain Dew, uh, Motorola, Ford, Gillette, others that were spending a lot of money on action sports events and action sports athletes, including some of uh, Sue's uh, clients. Uh, but I look back at that period, it was a lot of fun. And we were just sort of kids trying to like, make businesses, <laughs> make businesses yeah. work. Yeah. And you mentioned with the action sports, you got in right before it blew up with the X games and things of that nature. So talk to us about how you start this business, you know, with an idea or with a vision of what you want it to be and the timing and how it just really took off. Yeah. Well, so I'll start off by saying I, I certainly will not take all the credit. There were other uh, people that I was very fortunate to be partnered with 
um, that, that helped build that business. A woman named Teresa Jensen, who was a key figure in putting together a small investment group. Uh, my, my first partner, Brett Smith, and he and I were together for over 20 years um, and had a, a background in snowboarding, was a, a former professional snowboarder. And as a team, we were, I think, uh, you know, stronger, you know, together than we were separately. We each brought something to the table. What I brought to the table uh, was that I had some sports marketing agency experience and, and they both had real depth of understanding of action sports. We were probably, and very fortunately, probably a couple of years early in developing Fuse. Uh, we started it uh, operated it for a few years. Those were lean years. We were profitable, but just barely had a handful of employees, had a handful of uh, clients, including Burton Snowboards, which was a key uh, part of building the business to have the credibility of a brand like Burton uh, on our side. But we were very fortunate with a couple of things. One was that about 18 months after we started the agency, we were able to land uh, Pepsi as a client, and more specifically, the Mountain Dew brand as a client. And uh, what some of your listeners may not remember, unless they're of a certain age, is yeah. that there was a time when Mountain Dew actually didn't use Action Sports as a key platform to market their product. And we were fortunate enough to be involved in the transition and the development of a very famous campaign called Do the Do. Uh, which is still uh, being utilized by Pepsi today, you know, some 24, 25 years later. And so we were very fortunate to be involved in that all unfolding. And then about a year later, the X Games uh, was launched by ESPN. And because we already had Mountain Dew as a client, very quickly, we were able to, you know, to get Gillette, to get Motorola, to get Ford, and a bunch of other endemic brands. And then you know, we went from, you know, five people in a tiny little office on Pine Street in Burlington, Vermont. All of a sudden we had 50 people and we were working for major brands and we really operated that way for the next, you know, 20 plus years. So, you know, that's like catching lightning in a bottle, but you have to be open to the opportunity. I always say opportunity knocks, but it doesn't always knock twice. So was there any thought to say, no, this is too much. There's no way us five, 15 people can handle these big agencies. Did you have any limiting beliefs around that or was it all full speed ahead? Such a great question. And the way you phrase the question just brings back so many memories for me, almost sort of conflicting memories. You know, on the one hand, in hindsight, I feel like, you know, we were the good kind of naive. You know, mm. we were all in our, um, you know, I, I think I was the oldest, this will make you laugh, I was the oldest guy in the room, okay? And I had just turned 27. Um, <laughs> and so uh, we, we were naive and we thought we could just do anything. But we also had this other thing that at least Brett and I, you know, late at night in the office would say, which is, we're just gonna do this. And if it doesn't work out, we'll just go get jobs, you know? <laughs> because you can do that when you're, you know, in your yeah. mid-20s, you know, neither of us were married, neither of us had kids, you know, neither of us even owned a home. I mean, I, you know, I had recently bought a used car. It was like my biggest purchase ever. I think it was $8,000, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we didn't have much to lose 
And we didn't focus on that, but we were not fearful of things not working out because it just, we, the risk didn't feel so overwhelming. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's something about having a fresh start or that being naive, so to speak, as you mentioned, without having the fear of being burnt before, or when you can just come and think and look at the situation and say, wow, this is a great opportunity. I'm not going to let fear paralyze me, you know, versus if you had already failed at something, you might've been a lot more conservative and not, you know, open to taking that risk. I think that's exactly right. You know, when you, when you're at that stage in your career, there's a good chance that you haven't you haven't felt that kind of fear that can keep you from saying yes, right? I mean, and, and I also think, you know, I will give us a little bit of credit too, Derek, that I do think we were able to recognize that we might not have known everything we needed to know, right? But we knew a lot more than our clients knew about the action sports business, about event marketing, about athlete marketing. And we knew if we worked hard and we thought we knew more than they knew, and that was legitimate, we really did. Mm-hmm. Um, then then we, were, we, we, we also were fairly confident. And I would say, I'm not sure why I remember this, but, but your question makes me think of this too. I really remember, reminds me a lot of NIL in some ways, you know, there were all kinds of people flooding into the marketplace, trying to capitalize on this sort of emerging ecosystem that was action sports, new agencies, new agents, new media entities. And there were people around us who thought we ought to not compete, that we ought to, you know, just sort of partner with everybody or collaborate with everybody. And, and um, there's the right time for that kind of thing in business. But I think when you're in your mid-20s and you're trying to build something, you know, we thought, why would we do that? We don't need to be partnering with these other agencies. Why don't we go compete? Why don't we go try to win this business? And, you know, that was, I think that was important. And that reminds me a lot, by the way, of today in NIL there's already a tremendous amount of, you know, people reaching out, you know, you know, why don't we work on this together? Why don't we work on this together? And I think it's too early for that. Let's all get out there and compete. Agents, marketers, consultants, marketplaces, collectives, um, you know, that's how industries uh, sort of sort themselves out. And so um, not to sound like an, you know, over the top capitalist, I mean, I can't be, I live in Burlington, Vermont, after all. Uh, But I think competition is a good thing, particularly in an emerging ecosystem. Yeah, I like what you said. I want to point out two things. Uh, Number one, when you were talking about that you knew that you had more knowledge than the big brands, the go-giver principle, you know, not what can the company do for you, but you knew that you could bring more value to them than what they already had. Um, I think that's important, especially when you're doing business. It's not, okay, if you, we sign this contract, you can give me X amount of dollars. But when you can sit down at the table and say, look, I can bring to you this knowledge that I know that you don't have. 
and that you're lacking and you find that weakness or that that weak point for a company i think that's very important when you're negotiating and then the other piece is not being afraid to compete it's not always about um, trying to team up you know you want to uplift your your fellow man but sometimes you have to be willing to compete and not scared to compete and i think that's where so many people you know, we we shy away because there's already a big name in whatever we're trying to do, or there's already too many people with podcasts, or there's already too many books on this subject, but they still don't have your version of it. So I just want people to kind of take away those two things from what you said. Yeah, and I'll build even for a second on one of the things you just said, you know, using that example, well, there's already, you know, 50 podcasts that look like such and such. And as you say, yeah, but they don't have your point of view. You could be the 51st and it would still be adding something to the equation. And I always think about, you know, I, I'm very fortunate in that I teach, you know, a class on NIL at University of Vermont in a business school. And I've been fortunate to teach one other class, which we probably won't talk about uh, much tonight, but you're making me think of again with these good questions. I teach a class called sports entrepreneurship because, you know, there are very few industries that have as much innovation as the sports space does. I mean, it's really filled with these incredible uh, success stories of all types, you know? And the thing about, about that is that a lot of times you don't need to be the first to have developed an idea. If somebody's out there doing it, if they're 50 podcasts on a certain topic, if anything, it's proof that there's an audience for that content. Um, you don't need to be the first in developing a business. If you see three or four successful businesses in that space, it's evidence of success and interest in that space. I like that. And that just means that there's more of a breeding ground for you to come in and be creative. When you have competition already in that space, sometimes that just means that there's opportunity for more growth. Absolutely. It, you know, to me, it's, it's proof, uh, not that you will be successful, but proof that um, there is a marketplace for the idea, that there is an audience for that idea. Absolutely. So let's talk about how you transition because now you do a lot of work. I mean, every time I go on LinkedIn, I think I see a different article <laughs> about NIL. So you're deep in it daily, um, really with the research and the facts about NIL and how it's changed the college game already. So. You mentioned that you teach a class at the University of Vermont and talk to us about how you transitioned from the sports marketing agency to um, name, image and likeness. Yeah, uh, well, well, thanks for that question. I, I'll tell you that probably there are two important points, I guess, in, in my own uh, story about this. The first is when I sold my interest in Fuse at the end of 2019 and, and I had my sites set on NIL and really a consulting practice around it, there was one important thing that we did at Fuse that I wanted uh, to do again um, in this uh, realm, in the NIL realm. And that is, you know, back to your comment about data, uh, which is, and, and facts, is that I wanted whatever I was doing in the NIL space to be data driven, to be based in fact. And, and I didn't wanna be just another talking head with another opinion, in, informed or not, experienced or not. I wanted to be able to draw on data and not have everything be uh, you know, 
just because I said it so, or just because it's been my experience. I wanted something a little bit deeper than that. So at the end of 2019, when I had left Fuse and before I had launched Student Athlete Insights, I set up a, a community, a survey community of student athletes. I, I sort of systematically with a data scientist began to recruit current student athletes in NCAA Division I, II, and three, some NAIA athletes. And I've now begun to, uh, uh, started about six months ago, recruiting high school prospects into the community. And I built that community up to about 5,000 participants in which if they opted in, I would periodically send surveys uh, about all sort of, you know, uh, student athlete experiences, um, the vast majority of which now are about NIL. So I don't really just collect information on, you know, the financial aspects of what student athletes are doing in NIL. You know, Derek, I like to describe it as I'm trying to gauge the NIL experience that student athletes are, ha are having. And so I draw from that community um, as a piece of what I write about. Uh, I try to write about every week. I publish a, a blog called uh, Name Image Likeness Insider that's on my website. And I try to use data every week and talk about the things that are changing in NIL or specific trends and draw from the data uh, on a weekly basis. So let's talk about some of the things. You've been doing this now for over a year, I'm assuming. Uh, you really going on about two and a half years. Wow. So you started collecting the data before this even went live with the NCAA. That's true. So I was early, but at that point, you know, by early 2020, you know, the, the, the writing was on the wall. I mean, we, we mm -hmm. knew NIL was going to happen. We still didn't know exactly what the time frame was going to be. And, and in fairness, I hedged my bet a little bit by continuing to use the survey community uh, to gather data that was not about NIL entirely. So I would ask about all kinds of student athlete experiences, just because one, I wanted the information and two, if it took a little longer for NIL to launch, I wanted to be able to be collecting usable information that I could share with coaches and administrators. So who tends to reach out to you for the data that you have collected? Is this uh, universities come and say, hey, we need to know where or how we should be attracting NIL um, deals or, is this more for the individual athlete? Who benefits the most from your data? Yeah, yeah, good question. So um, I'll, I'll answer that from a sort of who my own customers are, right? And, right? and that's sort of the easiest way for me to answer it. So my customers tend to be sports organizations, often amateur or youth sport organizations uh, with a national footprint that have been impacted or changed from NIL. So think about this in, in even your own history. You know, when we used to use the term amateur athlete, we what we were saying was this person right. does not uh, get any compensation for anything that he or she does on the field or off the field if it in any way is connected to their sport. And NIL has changed the definition of amateur athlete. Now, amateur athlete means you're not being paid, you're not being compensated 
for things that you do on the field, but that you can remain an amateur for things that you do off the field, but that uh, anybody could agree you can only do you know, these activities off the field because you're participating in, in this case, intercollegiate athletics. So my, uh, you know, back to the question, my, my clients tend to be sport organizations, number one, colleges and universities, number two, brands, number three. Um, and then uh, finally, I'll say student athletes, but student athletes tend to not contact me specifically, but rather their college or university contacts me and I'm brought in and maybe I'll do a workshop for, you know, the four or 500 student athletes that are, you know, um, at the university. Uh, but, you know, that that's my uh, interaction with student athletes is usually I'm brought in through the university. But to believe it or not, universities are like the, um, you know, for every one university, you know, I probably am working with three or four, you know, brands or sports organizations or agents. Yeah. So what I think about when you say that is that the people that are bringing the money to the table are educating themselves um, about how they want to properly do this so they can win in this situation. But, you know, especially if you're not at a large um, FB, not FBS, but one of the large power five conferences where you have resources, you might be on your own to learn about the rules and regulations and what you can and cannot do so that you do not jeopardize your, your amateur status. Because I've spoken to some athletes that are terrified about, I don't know what I can do. I don't know who I can talk to. I don't know what I can take and still be eligible. So where do you recommend that athletes go so they can get a good understanding about NIL and how to safely use it? The Sabre training bat is like no other training bat you've ever used before. So the purpose of the Sabre training bat with its modified barrel is so that you can perfectly sequence and get behind the ball, getting the bat on plane sooner, creating less miss hits, more line drives, higher batting averages, and more exit velocity. The Sabre training bat is the number one training bat on the market. Sabre bats, the training bat that's gonna take you to your best swing. It's one of the most difficult parts of where we are in the NIL life cycle or its history rather in that there are still a number of even division one institutions where the student athletes don't feel supported. And um, I'll throw a couple of figures out at you and, 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 and try to answer this question fully. So in my studies, only about roughly 20% of student athletes are currently involved in NIL. That's not a big number, right, Derek? That's one out of every right. five. Now, I will say, and let's just focus on Division I for a moment, Division I athletics. Division I athletics has 176,000 participants. Um, so only one out of every five is participating in NIL. And so sometimes coaches, administrators, others, like to point at that number and say, well, you know, in fairness, we're only a year in, so it'll likely grow. But coaches and administrators who maybe not don't support NIL will say, look, the kids here just don't even care that much about it. None of them are participating. Hmm. To which my response is, well, they're not participating 
because many colleges and universities are offering very little to no support to educate them about what the activities and opportunities are and support them in all of sort of the foundational elements they'll need to have in place to be successful. Personal brand building, financial literacy, social media presence, and uh, ability to grow a social media audience and so forth. And so if it's a little bit, you know, it depends on how you want to argue the point. Well, I'd argue that we don't have a ton of student athletes participating because they're not being supportive. If you don't like NIL, you'd argue the opposite. Well, we're not providing right. the support because it, it's not warranted somehow because not everybody's participating. So I think the other thing that we have to realize is that, you know, for people that have spent some time in intercollegiate athletics, this will not be surprising. It's a fairly conservative traditional space, right? Higher ed's a little bit more traditional than I think people give it credit for. And, and I think intercollegiate athletics in particular tends to be pretty conservative and pretty traditional. And if you come from a traditional mindset, you know, there's sometimes it takes some time and some nudging before you're going to get on board with change. You know, when I do surveys and I do survey work rather with coaches and administrators, Derek, I don't know if this is going to surprise you, but only about 30 to 35% of coaches and athletic directors tend to support NIL. And so three out of 10, that means seven coaches in that building out of 10 right. don't love it, right? Now, that, that doesn't mean they're going to stand in the way of it, but it probably means that they're not going to go out of their way to support what's going on. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they're probably not educated on the benefits that it could have for them as well. I, I think they're not maybe educated on the benefits. And I'll tell you the exception of this, and, and it gets to another topic around the media. The exception, of course, are the head coaches, typically of power five institutions that coach football. Uh, men's basketball and women's basketball, who they may support NIL because of the recognition that it impacts their recruiting at this point. And if it impacts their recruiting, they have to support it, right? But outside of that small population, there's a lot of coaches who are really not on board yet. Yeah, you read my mind with that about the recruiting and how NIL is driving recruiting to certain institutions. So let's talk about how it's used as a recruiting tool, even though the university can't pay, but talk about the collectives and what the collectives are and how that impacts NIL. Right, so I actually talk about two things. First is as you bring up the collectives and what's happening there. The second thing is that while an institution may not be able to be intimately involved in bringing deals to a prospective student athlete or a current student athlete, they can certainly provide a structure within the program, the framework in the program that draws the attention of the recruit and sends the message to the recruit that the program takes NIL very seriously and that they will be supported once they get there. That has real impact. Um, so I guess that, I, I, that that won't be my number two. I just gave it away. That's my number one. Yeah. <laughs> but number two um, is that it, it impacts recruiting around, as you say, collectives. And now 
we're you know almost a year and a half in, and we've recognized there's really two kinds of collectives. The first kind of collective, the kind that started almost immediately when NIL was launched, is what we now call the donor-led collective. And that's the ones you've read about in all kinds of media, which are typically a group of wealthy donors gets together. They raise uh, a, you know, a lot of money in the millions of dollars in a lot of cases. And then they will take that money and create deals, NIL deals, either with a local brand, in some cases a national brand, or often with a local nonprofit to have, generally speaking, football players from the institution they support do some sort of NIL activity to earn the income that they intend to support them with, right? Right. <laughs> uh, and so um, those kinds of, you know, I mean, I, I can't remember what the, that I should know, but I don't off the top of my head, the number of collectives that are in place right now. I think it's well over 60 collectives around the country. Some of the bigger schools have, you know, obviously more than one collective. Um, we'll see how that shakes out in the next couple of years. I don't suspect that will stay in place for too, too long. Uh, but, you know, here, here's the thing, Derek, about collectives. They might be the lightning rod of what people say is wrong with NIL in the way they're constructed and the fact that, you know, it's not really what NIL was really intended to allow student athletes their right of publicity and then to use that right of publicity to then earn income in various ways, camps, clinics, private instruction, right. social media, all sorts of things. And what collectives have done, in a sense, is circumvent that and, uh, and basically found a way uh, to pay athletes in exchange for some sort of promotion that the student athlete is doing. I think the reason it rubs a lot of people the wrong way is, one, the optics of it. It sort of looks as if it's really just laundering money and giving it to athletes. Mm -hmm. um, and it, and the, the optics from the standpoint of, you know, a, a free market, you know, would those athletes, you know, would they really earn $25,000 for the kind of activity that they're doing uh, to earn that kind of money from a collective? And the answer is no, they wouldn't. You know, if, if those same athletes were in a, an open market in a professional sports landscape, they would be paid $2,500 for that activity, right. but they're being paid $25,000 from the collective. So all of that is, is not great. Here's the thing, though. Collectives are here to stay. You know, the NCAA doesn't have jurisdiction over the collectives. There's no federal law in place that's managing any aspect or legislating any aspect of NIL. Uh, state laws have not done anything to uh, go after collectives. And so collectives are here to stay. And in fact, they're growing in or rather morphing into even different, uh, slightly different versions of themselves. Now there are things called NIL clubs, which really is really a player or athlete-driven NIL, or athlete-driven um, collective in which um, groups of athletes, say on a football team at Michigan State or Michigan, sets up an NIL, East Lan the East Lansing NIL club or the, e the uh, Ann Arbor NIL club in which the athletes are just banding together and they're creating an own entity and they're selling memberships and 
if you pay, you know, 10, 25, 100 bucks a month, you're getting benefits from that group of athletes, you know, autographs, meet and greets, um, you know, access on message boards, things like that. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, it, these collectives are not going away anytime soon. Yeah. Wow. Uh, you know, it's already started to spread now to high school sports. And as we're talking, I'm thinking, how long will it be before it takes over AAU sports, where it's already been a lot of marketing and branding going on for years. Um, but yeah, with the collectives, it's almost like the rich get richer because the people, the schools that have a lot of resources, you're going to have a big pot. And that big pot's going to look very attractive to a top recruit, where if you're a small, maybe a smaller school or a school that doesn't have those resources and you're just battling to get enough funds to be able to put uniforms on your athletes, you don't have a big pot that's going to really attract someone and say, hey, you can, we're not giving this to you, but you will have access to this if you come. I think that's one of my, as much as I support student athletes and I support um, what has transpired with NIL, I want athletes to to you know, have the experience that they want to have, I do fear the very thing that you're describing, which is the rich getting richer, and there being even a further gap between, let's say, you know, the the common vernacular between the the high D ones and the mid mm -hmm. mid major D ones. I mean, that gap is uh, you know already pretty significant, and it's going to grow like crazy if the higher D1s are putting even more millions of dollars into their programs and the mid-majors, you know, are not really going to have collectives and they're not going to have super successful NIL clubs that are player driven. Um, and so I think if you're maybe one of those athletes that, you know, I think, I think of just, you know, sometimes this happens in basketball, it happens in all sports, but, you know, just think about it in basketball, it's like you could have major impact at a, at a mid-major program um, and, and you might spend a couple of years on the bench at a power five, but if you go to a power five, you're probably going to get NIL deals. And if you go to a, that mid-major where you'd probably, you know, play a lot as a freshman and probably start for three years, I just don't know that the mid-majors are going to get those kids. Right. And I think that's right. not good for college sports. Yeah, no, I agree. And one hot topic too is social media and its impact. What is the data showing about the role of social media in obtaining or getting these big NIL deals? Yeah. So again, another, another great question. So the data that I collect, and there's some other um, uh, groups that have collected similar data, um, not advisors like me, but rather the marketplaces. So marketplaces like Open Doors and Influencer that are sort of these dating sites of, you know, of, of brands and student athletes mm -hmm. coming together and doing deals they capture some of this activity data as well. And we've all sort of come to this sort of same uh, data set. Social media uh, accounts for about 80 to almost 90% of all NIL activity. So what that really means is that a brand is um, doing a deal with a student athlete to develop content and, and or publish content on that student athlete's uh, social channels uh, to reach the fans and uh, and followers of that student athlete. So 
this is there's a lot of social media deals being done, and there's reasons for that. The main one being that uh, there are a lot of eyeballs on student athletes on their social media. Um, student athletes have access to social media, and they can actually get the work done. And then third, it's not in comparison to some other activities, not as time consuming. And you know, with these student athletes playing their sport 20 hours a week, and and you know, and taking you know 12 or uh, 15 hours worth of classes every semester. Um, there's not a ton of time to do NIL work. Uh, so social media seems to be a, a good fit across the board. And so far, uh, one thing that we see that I want to point out is that football has been kind of the leader thus far as far as getting the big NIL deals. Um, do you feel like that's going to kind of change or do you think they'll continue to dominate the, the landscape? Well, I think they'll dominate, but they'll dominate a little less, I guess, if that makes sense, where where I think almost 100% of money that was coming from collectives over the first year has gone to football players. And of course, that inflates the overall numbers of 100% of that source going to football players. Um, you know, certainly not 100% of brand deals, brand relationships, or any other NIL activity is going to football but it's still a large percentage because football is, as we know, the most popular college sport from a fan perspective. And so, you know, if we had looked at the data, you know, one to three months into NIL, you know, the football players would have represented, you know, 80 to 90% of all the activity. And now that number is slowly creeping down uh, but when you look at all of NIL activity, it's still well over 50% of all of NIL activity is being, are, are being done by football players. And then the rest um, are, you know, in the more or less the single digits, men's basketball, women's basketball, baseball, softball, volleyball, those tend to all be sort of up in the top five. And then a bunch of the other you know, totaling 24 NCAA sports tend to be in the one to 2% range of all activity. This is great information. Um, and I just want to kind of wrap things up with a couple of rapid fire questions. So on time out with the sports doctor, I'd like to say this is your final time out and there'll be kind of true false questions, but definitely feel free to expand on them. Uh, okay. So first question is the university can pay athletes for playing sports. False. And tell us what that, why that's false. So uh, the university at this stage cannot be directly involved in putting together any sort of NIL deal. They can create an infrastructure around a student athlete to support her or him, uh, but they cannot be responsible for providing an NIL deal to a student athlete. All right. And all NIL athletes, question number two, all NIL athletes are, you know, making a great salary. They're getting rich from NIL. <laughs> uh, I know it's not one of my answers, but I wish the answer is right. also false. Uh, you know, there'll be uh, a handful, uh, less than 10 athletes uh, in Division One uh, in all of college sports that will make a million dollars in the first year. There might be a hundred athletes that might make a hundred thousand um, dollars. 
there'll be a several hundred that will make, you know, 25 to 50,000 and, and all that's great. Uh, however, if you look at the percentages, you know, that's, you know, that represents what, you know, 1% of the total of 176,000 division one athletes, less than 1% of, you know, 500,000 total student athletes. The tricky thing about these uh, financial figures, the average NIL income might look like, you know, 1500 bucks per NIL activity, but that's grossly inflated by those who are doing the big deals. The median income per NIL activity is under $100. Exactly. And question number three, all NIL deals are used to make the athlete a bigger, to build a brand for the athlete. Uh, I'm going to say true. I'm going to say true, not that that's the intent of the brand every time, and it may not even be the intent of the athlete every time, but I will say for sure it's true because every time an athlete does a deal, it impacts their brand, whether they so know it or not. Are you, are you saying that um, as they get one deal, they're more likely to get another one? Is that kind of? I think that I'm saying two things. One, the first is that if they do one deal, there's the potential to do a second, third, and fourth deal. And I'll also say that every time they do a deal, it's now out in the public domain, and that is impacts the perception, reputation, uh, what people think of that student athlete. Absolutely, absolutely. And well, thank you for this. This has been a great learning uh, tool for me, and I'm, I'm sure it's going to be very helpful for other athletes as well. And one thing, you know, I just popped in my mind, tax ramifications. Have you started to see, I guess it's too early, really for the people that have gone through a full cycle, but is that part of your survey on how much taxes these athletes are paying on their NIL deals? Right. As a topic, it is. I don't, I don't think I've surveyed for very specific information about uh, tax rates, for instance, that, that they're paying. But I'll say it's a, it's a great topic that you bring up. I'll, I'll just say this very briefly. There's been finally a little bit of uh, a narrative out there that gets student athletes to sort of wake up and pay attention to the fact that they're being paid as independent contractors and they probably need to take 30% or so of their income from an NIL deal, set it aside and be prepared to pay that in taxes uh, come, come April uh, 15th of following year. But there's, a, there's actually, I think, Derek, a more significant piece, which is you know a lot of these athletes who don't make a ton of money, it's actually they they're not going to owe a ton of taxes. Yeah, if you make a million bucks, of course, you're going to have a big tax bill, even $100,000, you might pay 30% tax on that or more. But if you've made a few hundred or a few thousand dollars, the mm -hmm. biggest concern I have for student athletes is not taxes. It's the impact on federal financial aid, the Pell Grant, any wow. need-based yes. aid. And, and as you know, but a lot of people don't think of it like this because you don't think about this in the football and basketball context. 50%, 50% of student athletes in the NCAA get financial aid. So if you also do NIL, any income you make could potentially impact the financial aid package going forward. 
that's the bigger concern. Wow. I mean, this is big business and I hope athletes will listen and hear that it's not just about getting this paycheck because your name, image, and likeness will follow you, you know, beyond college sports. And it's important to protect your name, image, and likeness and not just sign every deal. You know, who's helping you with these contracts? Because you're dealing with businesses that do this daily. And I know how it is. I know how it was when I got my first hospital contract. You read a sentence and you might understand two or three words in the sentence because it's worded in a way, you know, that's just going completely over your head. So hopefully people will use this as an educational tool um, to really, you know, empower yourself to make correct decisions when it comes to NIL. Great. Well, again, thanks, Derek, so much for, for having me on. It's great to be with you. And tell everyone how they can, you know, get um, access to the resources that you provide and how they can follow along with what you're doing. Yeah, great. Thanks for uh, thanks for mentioning that. So uh, you can go to my website, which is studentathleteinsights.com. You can sign up for my newsletter and get the data on a weekly basis. That's uh, through my blog, which I mentioned earlier, which is called Name Image Likeness Insider. That's also on my website. Um, and you can always reach out to me at bill at studentathleteinsights.com. That's great. And we'll include all that information in the show notes. Once again, thank you for your time. And I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Yeah, it was great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for continuing to support this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please leave a five-star review. And if you haven't done so, subscribe so you continue to get the updated episodes. Until later, peace. Life, sports, and medicine.